This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Under-researched, under-diagnosed, and under-treated. That's what happens to women when it comes to cardiovascular disease. We'll look at the reasons why. And can optimism lower your risk of heart disease? There's science that says yes. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A report from AARP, the American counterpart of CARP, finds that age discrimination against people age 50 and older cost the U.S. economy $850 billion in 2018. That breaks down to 8.6 million jobs and $545 billion in salaries and wages. Canadians are aging, and so too is the federal program that pays pensioners. The computer system that handles old-age security payments is being upgraded to modernized technology that dates from half a century ago. And the $175 million job should be done by the end of the year. Briefing notes sent to the Prime Minister called the system at risk of failure and in need of immediate attention. The former director of Canada's National Microbiology Laboratory has died from alcoholism. Dr. Francis Plummer held the Order of Canada and the Order of Manitoba. The 67-year-old recently disclosed he was treating his alcoholism through a clinical trial using deep brain stimulation. Plummer was at the helm of the Winnipeg lab during the spread of SARS and H1N1, as well as during the development of the Ebola vaccine. With dry January behind us, it may be a good idea to give up booze in February and beyond. Older adults diagnosed with alcohol use disorders have skyrocketed 107%. And more than 10% of Americans over 65 are binge drinkers, according to a recent study by the Journal of the American Geriatric Society. Why the increase? An aging population with more leisure time. But the problem is that alcohol becomes more toxic with age, leading to falls, car crashes, and other injuries. Only 9% of Americans have zero risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Gene Makesh's company is Lantern, builders of assisted living facilities that break with tradition when it comes to homes that cater to seniors with memory issues. The indoor space looks like an authentic neighborhood, reminiscent of where residents grew up. They live in small houses on a quiet street where the ceiling is painted like a sunny sky, artificial grass and bird melodies are all around. There's even a main street for residents to spend their downtime. The developer says this next generation of care offers a familiar setting for Alzheimer's patients to ease their struggles. So I have to tell you something today that I wish I didn't have to tell you. 
American conservative talk show host Rush Limbaugh told his radio audience this week that he's been diagnosed with advanced lung cancer. The 69-year-old political pundit announced the news on his daily talk show, telling listeners he'll miss upcoming episodes while receiving treatment. Limbaugh, one of the most influential conservative media personalities in the U.S. over the past three decades, often interviews influential guests, including President Trump, who bestowed him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom during this week's State of the Union Address. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Women are not small men, and when it comes to heart disease, they have paid a high price because medical science has treated them that way. Women have been under-researched, under-diagnosed, and under-treated, but according to the 2020 Heart and Stroke Spotlight on Women, progress is being made. I sat down with Dr. Paula Harvey, Physician-in-Chief and Director of the Cardiovascular Research Program at Women's College Hospital. We've been discovering over recent years, very recent years, that women are not small men. We are actually different. We're biologically different, and we tend to live our lives somewhat differently. And that impacts cardiovascular health. So that's heart disease, stroke, disease of the blood vessels in many different ways. Can you just go over uh, some of the numbers that show how women do not fare as well, the outcomes are worse for women? Uh, it starts right at the beginning when you're looking at risk factors. So we know that the, what we call the traditional risk factors for heart disease affect women differently to men. So that's things like smoking. We know that women are more likely to suffer from a heart attack if they smoke than men. Diabetes, high blood pressure, sedentary lifestyle, all of those traditional risk factors, we're different, men and women. And then women have uh, their own individual as a biological sex, we have different risk factors to men. So, for example, um, we have issues related to our reproductive hormones. So we are at increased risk of heart problems during pregnancy and when women go through menopause. We have different types of heart attacks to men. So while men tend to have heart attacks because of disease in their big coronary arteries, we can have heart disease of that type, but we actually also have heart disease that affect our small arteries and we have heart disease, we have heart attacks when we get a split in the arteries, which men don't get. We know that young women are more likely to uh, die from a heart attack than men. We know that we have more disability after a heart attack. Um, And then if you look at how we diagnose a heart attack, how we treat a heart attack, this differs between men and women as well. A lot of our treatments have been tested in men and not in women. And even when it comes to something like supporting women after a heart attack, Women are less likely to go to our cardiac rehabilitation programs, which are critical for implementing education and lifestyle, uh, you know, diet and exercise. Women are 50% less likely to attend a cardiac rehab. They're less likely to be referred and they're less likely to actually attend and complete cardiac rehabilitation. Do you have numbers which show women are more likely to die of heart disease? A woman's risk of dying from heart disease is 10 times the risk of dying from breast cancer. So if you were to ask a woman in the community what she felt was the the biggest risk to her when it comes to death, a very significant proportion will still say breast cancer. And yet if you're looking at the causes of death for women, it's way and above is cardiovascular disease. And what about more women not surviving a heart attack than men? It's particularly a problem in young women. 
There may be an issue with delay in diagnosis. So women need to understand they're at risk of heart disease. Doctors and other health providers need to understand that they're at risk of heart disease. And it can, women can have heart attacks even in their 20s and 30s, particularly if they're um, in a, it, with pregnancy, for example, that's a, um, a risk factor. It's what we consider our first stress test as women. While death rates from heart attacks are starting to decline in older women and older men, the group where the, the risk of death is increasing is in young women. And that, again, could be due to the fact that there's delay in diagnosis, that we are all as a a society developing risk factors for heart disease earlier, so we're becoming more sedentary and obese. And there are other risk factors like um, even depression that is a significant risk factor for heart disease that is A, not recognised as a risk factor and B, tends not to be treated effectively. We need to do better in screening patients for depression and working out what is the most effective way to treat that depression to reduce that heart attack risk and delayed recovery? Is it medication? Is it psychotherapy? Is it lifestyle interventions like exercise, meditation? This is something that is particularly important for women because of this high prevalence of depression in the population and the risk factor, particularly in women, for heart disease and for death and disability from heart disease. I'm just looking at this and It says that 27 scientists will share $4.3 million over five years. That is very little money in terms of research. So what's your assessment of where we're at with figuring these things out and how we're funding it? I'm actually really positive. I feel I've been in this area of research for over 20 years, 25 years, and I have seen this gradual expansion of understanding of the role of sex and gender in cardiovascular disease. And we're really starting to tease out the differences between men and women and impacting the way we are aware of heart disease and stroke, how we're, uh, we're diagnosing it, how we're treating it, how we're supporting it. And all of that is coming from this, this new way of making sure that research incorporates these differences right from the start. Okay. Dr. Paula Harvey, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. That was Dr. Paula Harvey of Women's College Hospital. We talked about the 2020 Heart and Stroke Spotlight on Women. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Are you an optimist? A growing number of long-term studies have linked that frame of mind to a lower risk of developing cardiovascular disease and other chronic illnesses and to fostering longevity. I reached Dr. Alan Rosansky, a cardiologist at Mount Sinai St. Luke's Hospital in New York. Well, optimism is simply a belief of that things are going to go well for me in the future. So it's almost like self-fulfilling prophecy to a certain extent? Well, I'm giving you a definition that is based on what the, the scales use. The scales ask people to, you know, identify uh, such questions like, in uncertain times, I expect the best to happen, or the opposite, if something can go wrong, it will. So, you know, that, that's what the scale measures. But I really think a more profound definition of optimism, or let's say, let's say an element of optimism, is also the belief that I can handle the things that are coming my way. It's like a it's a level of confidence. You know, if, if you think about it, that, you know, in life, you know, you might be confident that you can exercise or pass a test, 
You know, so that's a confidence in a given area. You know, optimism is like big confidence. It's the general idea that I can handle the things that, you know, come my way. So there's kind of an element of resilience. Yes, absolutely. We're told that people who are optimists are more likely to take care of themselves, eat well, sleep well, exercise, as opposed to people who are not. Well, we see this relationship that, you know, um, that optimists tend to have better health habits. You know, in part, it may be related to the fact that they uh, anticipate the future more or the better problem solving, things like that. We see this with all the psychological factors. People who are depressed, people who are anxious, tend to smoke more, tend to have poor health habits. People who are happy, people who are socially engaged, tend to have better health habits. They seem to co-travel. Here's the profound fact. The quality of our thinking, you know, whether it be optimism, happiness, uh, gratitude, uh, these things correlate with better health. And in part, they seem to do that they might, your, your, your nervous system isn't as roused up if you're not fearful, if you're not anxious. So, you know, you're not stressing yourself as much, you know. So I think that's one of the ways these things work. And is it possible to teach yourself to be an optimist? Yes, it's possible. But the the uh, the thing I would tell you is the following, and I'd, I'd offer this by an analogy. You know, if someone would come to me and ask me, you know, how can I be a happier person? I would tell them, don't try to pursue happiness directly. Look for the generator of that. Pursue meaning. You know, the more meaning you have, happiness is a byproduct of it, and it's a natural and, you know, stable byproduct. In the same way, I wouldn't say try to pursue optimistic thinking per se, that might be intimidating to someone who's less pessimistic. It's very hard to all of a sudden change your thinking pattern. Rather, you know, pursue the things that build optimistic thinking. I've seen studies on happiness that say that most people have a happiness set point, and most of it, sort of 45-50%, is genetic rather than the circumstances of their life. Does that apply to whether they're optimistic or not? I think that we have habits of which thinking is perhaps our most habitual habit, if you will. So people's habits tend, you know, their habitual thinking, their way of thinking tends to affect their level of happiness, you know. But I think if someone taps into, uh, let's say I want to become feeling more grateful and they work on more gratitude, I think they can increase their level of gratitude and happiness flows from that. So I think we can change that quote-unquote set point. I don't think that that particular research is is so robust. Finally, there's one aspect of focusing on optimism that I have to say personally really bugged me, and that's uh, in in response to cancer. So a lot of people will say things like, oh, you got better, of course, because you're optimistic, and a suggestion that people who are not optimistic are not going to recover. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. You know, the the last thing we want to do is, is put any burden on someone that they have to think a certain way or if they're not thinking a certain way, they should feel bad and so forth. You know, basically, what I would say is this, just to reiterate, that, you know, you can increase optimism by building the building blocks. One of them is learning how to, you know, just solve problems better in your life. And as you start to do that, you know, you build, you know, a little confidence and it eventually becomes greater confidence. Or you can build the muscle of positive 
asking, and I like to tap into gratitude as a, as a or appreciation is a good place for that. And then there is a place for using a, a uh, cognitive behavioral technique called reframing. And that's a technique where you learn to, you know, substitute more positive thoughts for negative thoughts you have. But that's, a, that's like another muscle that you develop over time, and people can do it. Unfortunately, we don't teach it. We don't promulgate it enough. I think it should be more available to people. You know, in the issue of uh, particular cancer patients, that's a, that's a whole different story there. You know, there's many factors, social support, you know, your sense of meaning, you know, the, the many factors that can affect, you know, how you handle the cancer. Uh, I, I wouldn't just focus on optimism there. Okay. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? No, I've appreciated this conversation. Thank you so much. And I appreciate it very much as well. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Alan Rosansky, a cardiologist at Mount Sinai St. Luke's Hospital in New York. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me. And be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.